Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, Christian, there are two things taking over the world. One of them is pickleball, and the other is quick trip. So I tell my kids on a regular basis, two things taking over the world, pickleball and quick trip. When Nazbil Cuentes moved to Green Bay, I said, I know this sounds really strange, but we have this awesome gas station called Quick Trip. I mean, where else can you go? to find such great deals. Uh, you know, we actually have a quick trip near our house and uh, this is how much we like quick trip that my son on his uh, Life360 account, which is, I think we have a picture of it. Do we have a picture of it, Neil, that we can put up? Uh, on his Life360 account, he actually changed his name from Caleb uh, to probably going to quick trip. That's what he changed his name to, <laughs> probably going to quick trip. I mean, quick trip is just such such a great store. I mean, where else can you get fresh, hot, tasty, cheap food? Uh, where else can you have like the coffee beans ground right in front of you to pour out fresh coffee or get five pounds of uh, potatoes for under a dollar? And every time you check out, they say, see you next time. By the way, try to beat them to the punchline if you can. That's what I, see you next time. And they're like, what? So Quick Trip was founded in Eau Claire in 1966 and is uh, headquartered in La Crosse, and has grown from one store uh, to over 502 stores in Wisconsin, which is 200 more stores than McDonald's, to put it in perspective. There's about one store for every 12,000 people, and it has been ranked the best gas station in America four years in a row. Uh, we have been so trained by Quick Trip and become such snobs about gas stations that when we go on vacation— uh, down south, through Illinois, through you know Indiana, through Florida, uh, we really don't know where to stop to get gas. We don't know where there will be a clean bathroom or good, tasty, reasonably priced food. And so every time we are in those southern states, we think to ourselves, quick trip, may your kingdom come to Chicago and to Indiana and to Florida, just as it has in Wisconsin. The kingdom of quick trip is taking over the world, and I love it. It's fantastic. You know, earlier we sang the song that echoes the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught us to pray to our Father, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we pray for God's kingdom to come, what we are recognizing is that the world is like a dirty bathroom at a gas station. And we are praying, Lord, let your kingdom come and bring cleansing and redemption and restoration. May our Thanksgiving gatherings be filled with holiness and happiness, not bitter and anger. 
We are praying that the suffering and the sadness of this world would cease, that addiction and indwelling sin would be crucified, that injustice and exploitation would be destroyed, and that disease and death would be eradicated. When we pray, Father, let your kingdom come, we are praying that people would come to know Jesus and that we would be sanctified by Jesus. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are praying for a better, happier, and more powerful kingdom to take over more dominion in this world. Friends, the happiest place on earth is not Disneyland, and it is not Quick Trip. The happiest place on earth is wherever the kingdom is spreading. And so we pray, Lord, let your kingdom come as we suffer through this broken world. If you would, please open up to Joshua chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, you absolutely need a Bible. There is a Bible in the seat in front of you. Go ahead and grab that. Uh, you will need the Bible for sure, so please take that. And we will be on page 185 in the Red Bible. Uh, just to catch you up on where we have been, Israel has defeated the mighty nation of Egypt, as well as Sihon and Og, east of the Jordan River. Uh, they have started moving into the Promised Land and taking over the Promised Land. They have defeated and destroyed Jericho and Ai. Last week, uh, we saw the city of Gibeon, uh, who, which is about 10 miles from the city of Ai, uh, out of fear of the Lord and certain that Israel is going to win, uh, they, they decide to enter into a covenant or to trick Israel into a covenant of peace with them, and the deception works. And so Israel forms this covenant of peace with Gibeon. And when they make this covenant of peace, Joshua does something really interesting. He takes the Gibeonites and he puts them in service at the altar so that they might see again and again an atonement for sin that God is providing. And through that, we, we hear as throughout the rest of the Old Testament that the Gibeonites are actually engrafted into the people of God and are followers of the Lord God for many hundreds of years to come. And so the question is, what's next? After Israel makes this covenant with Gibeon, after they defeated two of these tribes but have a lot more territory to conquer, what comes next? And so let's look together uh, at Joshua chapter 10, and we'll start by just reading verses 1 through 5, and it's a longer chapter. We'll make our way through it uh, throughout the sermon. So Joshua chapter 10, verse 1. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai, and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its kings as he had done to Jericho and its kings, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities. And because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hohem, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Verse 5, Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered their forces and went up with all their armies, and then camped against Gibeon and made war against it. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that your kingdom would continue to grow in our hearts and in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I have a map for you up here on the slides. Uh, it's also on the back of your bulletin, and this will be helpful throughout the sermon. That's why I put on the back of the bulletin. Usually we have staff contact information, but figured you needed the, bullet, the, the map today. And so, so far, what we've seen in the passage in the first five verses is you have right here Gibeon. Uh, Gibeon made a covenant of peace with Israel, which is encamped at Gilgal. And uh, because Gibeon has made this treaty of peace, they've kind of made this superpower in which these two giants have uh, assembled together. And so uh, if you look at the gray areas, uh, you'll see these various cities. There's Jerusalem, Hebron, Eglon, Lachish, uh, Jermuth. And, and what the king of Jer Jerusalem does is he says, hey, why don't we all get together um, and why don't we attack Gibeon? And let's go ahead and cut off the head of Israel. Let's cut off the, the front end of it so that it weakens Israel and maybe they'll get scared and run away. It's really a brilliant attack. And so the king of Jerusalem gathers these five kings and, and all of their troops and they encamp right outside of Gibeon. Uh, now, as we look at that, it's important to know uh, here in a little bit that, that Gilgal, where Israel is encamped, is down a steep mountain. You can see that, and it's about a 20-mile hike, which is a really long hike down, uh, up a mountain if you've ever done something like that. Now, before we get in and kind of look at Gibeon's response to this threat, uh, I want to, to kind of talk about how we can faithfully apply this passage to our lives, and really how you can faithfully apply any of the war passages of the Old Testament to our life. You see, in this passage, Israel is going to take major steps forward in expanding uh, the kingdom of God into the promised land of God. And, and what they're trying to do, or what God is doing, is he is bringing them into this land to create a happy land and a holy land. Now again, what we'll find out is this happens through war. And so in order for us to properly understand how to apply this passage, we need to understand that in the Old Testament, the people of God were not only a spiritual entity, which we are today, but they were also a political entity, which we are not today. They were a theocracy. And so they had kings and they had judges and they had a military and they had you know, governing laws uh, and, and how people should be punished if, if they violate those laws. This is why they fought wars, because they were not only a spiritual entity, but they were also a political entity. And the Lord brings them into the land of Canaan to conquer it. So that they would not only have a land dedicated solely to worshiping and following the Lord, but that through this promised land, God might bless all the nations of the earth, that, that as they traveled through there on commerce, they would see how the Lord has blessed them and they would say, who is the Lord their God? And they would come to know the Lord and take his good name back to their own people. Today, the people of God, the church, is not a theocracy. We're not a political entity. And so we don't raise the sword. We don't have armies. We don't have a country. And Jesus made it very clear when he was going to the cross, that he did not come to establish an earthly political kingdom, but has come to establish a heavenly spiritual kingdom. And so we, the New Testament people of God, are to expand the kingdom of God, not with swords, but with the gospel of peace and with the word of God, with charity and with love. And so in today's chapter of military conquest, we need to remember as we see them physically taking the land the promised land that God has given to him, that we are called to a spiritual battle, really to take over not just 
the promised land of Canaan, but the entire world with the gospel of Christ. And so we are to fight for his kingdom, for this happy and holy kingdom. And as we read about the expansion of God's kingdom into the promised land of Canaan, we can glean some things about our own spiritual battles that are going on around us that we are involved in. And so as we read this passage, as the people fight, we will see that God extends his kingdom both in us and through us, and that we are called to fight a good fight of faith. And so how do we do that? How do we fight the good fight of faith? Well, there are three big things that we see here in this passage. First, we must fight the good fight dependently. Look at verse six with me. It says, and the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. Notice the people of Gibeon are being attacked. And the first thing that they do is they call on the people of God to come and help them. See, we are called to fight as a dependent people. One way is by being dependent on God's people. We see this team approach throughout the New Testament. In in Galatians chapter six, it says, brother, if any of you are caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you to be tempted. And it says, bear one another's burdens. There are so many passages. Almost the entire New Testament is filled with passages about how we are to engage with one another, love one another, fight with and fight for one another. James 5 says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Even Jesus, as he was sending out his apostles to go preach the gospel, to expand the kingdom of God, he did not send them out one by one. He sent them out two by two. The Bible is clear that we are called to do this Christian thing, not on our own, but with others. Because if we do it on our own, we become an easy target for our enemy. I don't know if you've ever watched those National Geographic or Safari shows where they are have filming like all these gazelles peacefully, you know, out in the out in the plains grazing, right? And they're all grouped together and then in the distance it cuts to a pride of lions who are peering at them and planning on attacking them. And then and then at, at the moment that the lioness gives the signal, they charge the herd of antelope, and they charge the herd of antelope to create confusion and the chaos, so they start scattering. And what their hope is, is that they can isolate a single antelope. Because if they can isolate that single antelope, then they can gang up on them, kill them, and drag them off. First Peter 5.8 says this. And I think we have it on the screen as well. Can you put that up, First Peter 5.8? Thank you. It says, be watchful. That's first person plural. Y'all, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking or seeking someone. That's first person singular, seeking an individual to devour. You know, we live in a Christian culture that says, all I need is me and Jesus. I don't need the church. I don't need brothers and sisters. All I need is me and Jesus. 
But this is a tactic of the enemy. You see, Satan's tactic, tactic is to separate God's person from God's people. Let me say that again. Satan's tactic is to separate God's person from God's people. And the way that he does that most of the time is to make us busy. Satan loves it when we say, man, I am too busy to go to church. I am too busy to connect with other believers in a community group or a triad or, or a men's day or women's day. Satan loves it when we say we're too busy to do those things. That is the tactic of our enemy, to isolate us to our own destruction. And so if you feel isolated today, if you are isolated today, I want to encourage you out in the atrium, there's a huge map with community groups, men's studies, women's studies, tribes, a lot of places where you can connect because we are supposed to fight the good fight dependent on God's people. The second is that we are to fight the good fight dependent on God's power. Look at verse eight with me. It says, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. In other words, God is saying, listen, I'm going to win the battle. I'm going to win the war, but you need to go fight it. You still need to go fight it. Even though God is sovereign and in control of all things, we still have to fight the fight that God has put in front of us. Verse nine. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. Okay, so there was a surprise attack at daybreak. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horn and struck them as far as Ezek and Makeda. And so if you look again at the map, if you could put that map back up there, if you look back up at the map, what you'll see is that the attack starts here at Gibeon and they, they fight them all the way down this year, all the way to Ezek, all the way to Makeda. This is where they're guessing that it is. But that's a good 20 or 30 miles. And remember, uh, that night before, they had already hiked 20 miles uphill to Gibeon. And so they are chasing, chasing their enemies down. Verse 11. And they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horn. The Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Again, here you see God working miraculously to accomplish his victory. He is a sharpshooter that is taking out the enemy without really killing any of the Israelites who are in pursuit of them. Verse 12, at that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, son, Stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ihalan. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Now remember, Israel, again, attacked at daybreak. They marched all night. They had to chase this army down about 30 miles before, uh, before they would get into their fortified cities. And so Joshua makes this petition that the sun would stand still, that God would take out his remote control and that he would hit pause on the solar system. And for God, this is no problem at all. Verse 13 continues. It says, is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since. And when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Yes, Joshua and Israel fought the battle, hand-to-hand -hand combat. 
dependent on one another to fight alongside of them. But they fought dependent upon the Lord, that the Lord was going before them, that the Lord would win the victory ultimately. And guess what? This is what God does. God shows up and he puts the enemy troops into confusion and he rains hailstones down from from heaven above to, to, to sharpshoot them down and then he pauses the universe that they might accomplish their victory. You know, the title of this sermon series is Be Strong and Courageous, for the Lord is with you. Do you believe this? Do you believe that the Lord that was with Israel in that day is with you this very day? He is powerfully present with us, and we have experienced his power through our own salvation, that he has brought us from death to life, that he has granted us the forgiveness of sins. We are called to go and fight the good fight of faith, dependent on one another, but also dependent on God himself to show up. It has been famously said, do something so great for God that unless God is in it, it is doomed to failure. Christian, where is God calling you to fight? In your own heart? Where is God calling you to fight in the world around you? Don't be arrogant. Don't be self-reliant. Don't overestimate your strength. Fight dependent on God's people and dependent on God's power. So that's the first thing we see in fighting this good fight to expand the kingdom of God, both in us and outside of us. The second thing we see is that we must fight confidently. This is a little bit confusing, so just so that we kind of understand what's going on here. Verses 16 through 28 uh, is really a retelling of the battle that we just read, but its primary focus is on the king's that had come to attack Jerusalem. And so it's just telling a different part of that same story. So let's look here at verse 16. It says, These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Machida. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave of Machida. Again, we're not exactly sure where it is, but if you remember, it was like at the end of that battle road. And Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter the cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hands. In other words, have some guys guard the kings, but everyone else go and finish the battle. Verse 20, when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, meaning there were some survivors, then all the people returned safe to Joshua and the camp at Machida, where the kings were in the cave. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Verse 22, then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. Let's pause there. By putting your, knee, your, your, your foot on a neck is a way of claiming victory and showing dominance. So you take the lowest part of your body, your foot, and put it over the highest part of their body, which is the head. 
Uh, in, in modern day sports, I was thinking, what does this look like today? I don't know if you've ever seen in basketball when someone makes an amazing play, but they'll, they'll run down the court and go like this, right? Like too small, too small, too small. Have you ever, have you ever seen that? I don't let my kids do this because we're not in Old Testament times, we're in New Testament times. But, but this is what they're doing. They're saying too small, too small, too small. And they're, they're, they're showing their victory by putting their feet upon the necks of these kings. This is talked about in the Old Testament and it adds in the New Testament, as the enemies being a footstool for the victor. And we read this even about Christ himself. So in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 through 13, it says this. It says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. This is the same imagery that's being used here in this passage, that there is coming a day when Christ will return and all of his enemies and all of our enemies, he will make a footstool for his, for his feet, that he will put his feet upon their neck. And as you see in this passage, as the future is in mind of final victory, we also see it here in this passage as well. Look at verse 25 with me. It says, And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do, the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Again, what is the message here? The message is you can be strong and courageous for the Lord who has been faithful to you and has provided you victory throughout your entire life will be faithful and provide victory for you in the future. So you can continue to go and fight the good fight of faith. Verse 26, and afterwards Joshua struck them and put them to death and he hung them on five trees representing the curse of God upon them. And they hung on the trees until evening, verse 27. But at that time, at the time of the going down of the sun, after it's been up for two days, Joshua commanded and they took them down from the trees so that the, the promised land wouldn't be defiled and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. The command to go and to continue to conquer the promised land was a weighty command. It was a scary command. And so the Lord is saying through Joshua, be confident. The same God who has fought for you in the past is going to fight for you in the future. I've shared this before, but I coach peewee football or I just retired from it. And, uh, and when we would come up and be playing like a really good team against us, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't come to my players and say, hey, you know what? They're really big. <laughs> They're really difficult. They're really tough. Uh, you should probably play scared, right? Why don't you play scared? Uh, be afraid all the time, right? It's not why I said it. Play confident, right? Play bold. Why? Because you're good. Because you have grown in your abilities. You're a better team now than you were before. And you've won some games. So you can be confident when you play them. The reality is that's not a really good argument. Because all the same things are true of the other team as well, right? They, they, have, they have gotten better. They have won some games. They're a pretty good team. And so our confidence is shaky, right? But what if, what if Lamar Jackson was on our team? What if I said, hey, you know what? You can be strong and courageous because they can't tackle that guy. 
That guy wins no matter what. It's going to happen. Be strong and courageous. Fight this good fight knowing that you are going to be victorious because that guy is with you. That is what Joshua is saying here about the Lord, that you can go and fight these battles because God goes before you. He rains down hailstones. He stops the sun. He puts people into confusion. And so go and fight the good fight confidently knowing that God is with you. And so... Christian, what enemy is battling you? Is it sin? Is it addiction? Is it family feuding? Is it unforgiveness? Is it bitterness? Is it anger? Step on the neck of whatever is fighting against you because God has assured us that he will win the victory. So just to recap, we are called to fight the good fight of faith dependent on God's people and dependent on God's power. We're also to fight confidently, knowing that God is on our side, and in the end, God wins. God is undefeated. Finally, we must fight enduringly. Before we get into the rest of this passage, you'll, you'll see it's a pretty gruesome passage. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of carnage. And, and if you're here for the first time at Jacobsville, you might be like, what in the world are they reading at Jacobsville Church? But let me remind you, these are not innocent people. These people, in essence, are terrorists, people who are full of all sorts of sexual depravity that are illegal even in the United States, which if it's illegal in the United States, that's saying something, right? Like they're sleeping with family members, with their farm animals, like it was bad. Not only that, they were also sacrificing their children on the altar of their gods. Again, something that is illegal here outside the womb, but it's also illegal throughout the entire world, I believe. I don't know of anyone that does this. These were wicked and awful people on the level of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so as we read through this, don't think of these as good, wholesome, wonderful people. These were wicked people who have been sinning against the Lord, as we saw earlier, for five, 600 years until he brings his judgment. And so the Lord is going to do this southern campaign through Israel, and he's going to clean house through, through Judah, excuse me. He's going to clean house to set up this happy and holy land. So if you would, go ahead and put the map up and just keep it up there. And as, as I read through it, you can either look at the map or you can read it in your Bible. But it's a longer passage, and so try to stick with me. Verse 28 says, As for Mechida, Joshua captured it on that day, the same day that he killed the kings, and struck it and its kings with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, and he did, not, and he did to the king of Mechida just as he had done to the king of Jericho. All right, verse 29, which is the next day. Uh, Israel doesn't go home to regather. Uh, they continue in the campaign. Verse 29, then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Mechida to Libna, and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its kings into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it. And he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel, and he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it as he had done to Libna. Verse 33. Then Horam, king of Gezer, Gezer, came up to help Lachish. 
And Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Verse 34, then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon. And they laid siege to it and, found and, and fought against it. And they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And he devoted every person in it to destruction that day as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron, where Abraham, their descendant, first bought land in the promised land. And they fought against it, verse 37, and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its king and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Eglon and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Verse 38, then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it. And he captured it with his kings and all his towns and they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and his kings, so he did to Debir and to its kings. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowlands and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. Verse 41 and Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barna as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their lands at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. You know, as long as it might felt for us to read those verses, can you imagine how long it was for Israel to live those verses? To go from battle after battle after battle after battle? Guess what? When they finish all of these battles and when they go back to Gilgal, there are still more battles for them to fight. They're going to do a northern campaign in chapter 11, as we'll read about next week. But here's what we see for the people of God is that we're never done fighting battles. Even if we fight a battle and there is victory, there is another battle to be fought. Because you see, the kingdom of God does not conquer our hearts and it does not conquer the world instantaneously. It conquers progressively. And so we must fight enduringly. Before we move on to the conclusion, I know as we read this passage, you may ask the question, you may say, how can a good and loving God kill so many people? I think all of us have that question to a certain degree. How can a good and loving God kill so many people in the Old Testament? But here's the thing. It is because God is good, and it's because God is loving that he clears the land of its wickedness. In preparation for this sermon, I watched the movie Braveheart. And uh, it's, a, it's a movie that I practically memorized in college. And, uh, and in that movie, the English have taken over Scotland and they have enslaved them. Not only have they enslaved them, but they have, they have raped them and they have murdered them. Uh, and, and, and they've even invited their leaders into a, 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 a hut, I guess you would say, under a banner of peace where they want to make a peace treaty with them. Instead of making a peace treaty, they deceive them, they kill their leaders, and they kill even the children that came with those leaders. Furthermore, the English would take the Scottish women on their wedding night and lay with them before their husbands did in order to try to breed the Scots out of Scotland. The English exploited the Scottish. They were awful to them. 
And against this wickedness, under the leadership of William Wallace, the Scots unite and they drive the English out of Scotland in warlike, brutal manner. And there is a part in the movie, after many battles, when Hamish, uh, William Wallace's right-hand man, says this. Hamish says, I don't want to be a martyr. And Wallace responds, nor I. I want to live. I want a home and children and peace. I've asked God for those things. But he's brought me this sword. Why did the Scots fight? Was it because they loved war? Was it because they loved death and they loved carnage? Not at all. It was because they loved what was right and good, and they wanted to bring restoration to the land. They loved freedom. They loved life. They loved the sanctity of marriage, and they loved their families. And so they sought to clear the wickedness from the land that they could live a life that was right and good and pleasing to the Lord. Why did the Lord clear the land of Canaan of its wicked inhabitants? Was it because God loves death, because God loves war, because God loves carnage? No, not at all. It's because God loves everything that is right and good and holy in order to bring his kingdom of happiness and holiness into the promised land of Canaan. He had to eliminate all of the wickedness inside of it. And this is why we fight the good fight of faith. Not because we want to hurt people, but because we want God's kingdom of happiness and holiness to grow in our hearts and in our communities and in our world. And so whatever battle we are fighting, we must fight with endurance. And when that battle is over, no, there is another battle to fight for the kingdom of God, and we must fight enduringly. I love uh, what Tom Fowler always says, and Charlene, his wife, and him uh, display it so wonderfully He says to me again and again, he goes, I want to die with my boots on. I want to die with my boots on. There is no retirement for people in the Lord's army until they go to heaven. We are called to fight the good fight of faith until Christ returns or calls us home. All right, let me end with this. Something very interesting about this passage is that this is actually the first time Jerusalem is mentioned in the entire Bible. Uh, and it's the first, and, and, and as mentioned, it also mentions his king, whose name is Adonai Zedek. And the king's name, Adonai Zedek, means Lord of Righteousness. Isn't that interesting? And the name Jerusalem means the Lord provides peace or they will see peace. And ultimately, Adonai Zedek is, is not a Lord of Righteousness, as we find out. And he does not bring peace into the land. He brings war into the land. But the good news is that another Lord of righteousness is coming into the city of Jerusalem who will bring peace for the people of God. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ who did not come to slay sinners as they deserve, but came to be slain by sinners, for sinners, to save sinners. And then on the third day, he rose again and he ascended into heaven where he is ruling and reigning at this time. But there is coming a day, and no one knows when, when the Lord of righteousness will return when he will come, not in peace, but with a sword of judgment to cleanse the universe of its wickedness and evil and depravity. And through this, he will bring to completion his holy and happy kingdom of peace. And so friends, let me ask you, which side of this battle are you going to be on? Will you be among the slaughtered sinners who are thrown into the lake of fire? Or have you surrendered? to Jesus? 
Have you been conquered by the righteous one? If you have not, may I exhort you. You do not want to be on the wrong side of this battle when Christ returns. Surrender all of your life to Christ. Let him conquer your soul. Trust him for your salvation so that when he brings the kingdom of God in fullness upon you, you might experience the happiness and holiness of God for all eternity. You know, at the beginning, I said there are two things that are taking over the world, right? But there's only one thing that will completely consume the world, and it is the kingdom of God. And until it comes in its completion with Jesus, he has called you and I, Christian, to fight the good fight of faith. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful that you did not settle for a world full of brokenness and horror and sadness and treachery, but that you have come to redeem people like us who are guilty of these sins, God. And you have come to to bring your kingdom in our hearts and in our lives and in our homes, but also throughout the world. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would conquer more territory, that you would continue to expand your kingdom in our souls, in our neighborhoods, in our houses, and in our world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.